welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast, episode 47, The Constellation Andromeda, a deep dive. My name is Chris, and I'm... What? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> you're going on, you're, are you going off the deep end, Shane? I was coming in with my... You know, we talked last time about, like, you know, the deep voice of, you know, deep dive. Deep dive. So my name is Chris, and I, I'm already joined by Shane, and we're two amateur astronomers who do astronomy just for the love of it, and this is the Actual Astronomy Podcast your visual guide to the night sky. So Shane, another deep dive. Go for it. Yeah, we're here to talk about a very prominent fall constellation, Andromeda. Uh, you and I have looked at many different objects within the constellation. And this is part of kind of an ongoing series that we're doing within the podcast where- That's right. I don't know, probably, we haven't really figured out a cadence, but I would say once or twice a month, we'll probably Maybe. pick yeah. a constellation. And we'll just, that's going to be the podcast. We'll talk a yeah. lot about it. Um, maybe some of the history, maybe some of the objects uh, to observe in it. And we'll try to time it so that, you know, it's relevant, you know, meaning the constellation mm -hmm. is easy to see in the sky at this time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I'm really excited about is, you know, and this is quite a ways into the future, Chris, but at some point we will have all of the constellations covered off. And the thing about the sky is that these constellations really don't change year over year no. or lifetime over lifetime. Um, so they become a really good reference uh, going forward, you know, uh, and, and even you and I, like, at least I'll speak for myself. Um, we do this a lot, but sometimes I forget about things. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to be able to come back, have a little bit of a reference or a reminder about some of the things to look at. And uh, I think it'll serve as a, a pretty good resource for the, yeah, well, just going forward. Well, you're really making a big commitment on our part because I just calculated that if we do one a month, there's 88 constellations in the nighttime sky, that will take us seven and one quarter years to do this project. Yeah, yeah. Well, get, I, I hope you have a comfortable chair. <laughs> I, my chair is not that comfortable. I think we need a ergonomic. <laughs> need an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. So last month I picked uh, Scorpius because I'm lazy and I was writing an article for the RASC Observer's Handbook 2021 due out here in a couple months time. And this month you suggested Andromeda. So what made you select the constellation Andromeda for this month's constellation deep dive? Well, uh, it's the first one. I think if you just look at the list alphabetically, I think Andromeda might be number one or close to it. <laughs> it's, at, it's at the start of the list. Um, but, you know, uh, with that uh, really not being the reason, um, it's because it's prominent in the eastern sky right now. If you mm -hmm. go out at sunset and look east, um, Andromeda is just a little bit below Cassiopeia. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when we're out under dark skies, um, probably one of the biggest, brightest objects is in Andromeda, which is M31, the Andromeda galaxy, which we'll talk about. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a great object. Um, it's one of the uh, most prominent ones on the Messier list. And under a dark sky, um, it's, uh, you don't even need a telescope. You just need your eyes. Yeah. So Andromeda, it's... You're right. It's, I was looking at the, uh, the software to see exactly where it is on, on these nights. And as it's getting dark, uh, it's about halfway up to the zenith, which is the point overhead in the eastern sky. So nice and, uh, nice and visible. You know, uh, Ptolemy, who was one of the first celestial uh, catalog makers, he included that in, in one of his uh, 48 constellations. He was a, a 
a Greek astronomer, and uh, he made up a, a set of constellations based on uh, Hipparchus and some uh, some of those who came before him. But uh, likely Andromeda has its roots in the, the Babylonian constellations. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I like to I like to teach about those in, in my astronomy class. So the other thing is is that. Uh, I'm quite interested in how the Chinese astrologers saw the constellations. Because one of the things that I really like about some of the other cultures and how, how they viewed the, the sky uh, sort of different from, from the, the Greeks uh, and the Persians is that, um, for example, the Chinese saw this as four constellations, a set of legs, uh, a great general, a wall, and a snake, and, and the different stars would have interplayed in amongst those those different uh, constellations, I really wish it was easier to to find those. Like, there's there's a set of constellations very similar to those in Capricornus, which is also a fall constellation. Um, and I, I forget that my I had traced these out um, as per the the Chinese astrologers. Um, but it's really interesting how how they would sort of interplay a little bit more amongst amongst the stars and less less fixed less uh solid boundaries uh like like we have today so do you know the greek mythology though of of andromeda yeah well i was brushing up a little bit on andromeda (laughs) uh, knowing we would be talking about it um yeah so andromeda is is the princess daughter of uh, uh queen cassiopeia and uh king cepheus is that right I think so. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, Cassie or sorry, uh, Andromeda uh, was chained to some rocks uh, near water where a sea monster Cetus was going to come and attack her. And then Perseus comes in and uh, rescues like her flying by. I think, yeah, you know, just like, Hey, by. what's going on down there? Yeah. Whoa. He may have had um, some special boots on. I heard as well. I'm not, <laughs> not sure about that, but um, but anyway, it's kind of neat because you see all of these constellations kind of in the sky. And, you know, if you know the, the, the Greek mythology behind it, it it's, it's kind of neat to see the visual. Mm. Um, you know, maybe one other comment, not, you know, not associated with the Greek mythology is that, you know, cultures throughout history have seen the stars differently. And it's really interesting to, to hear how they perceive them. And you mentioned the Chinese astrologers saw four constellations here. Mm-hmm. Probably we'll focus mostly on the Greek mythology because that's really what the constellations are, are based in. But um, if somebody's interested, there's an awful yeah. lot of history that you can get into with how uh, these stars have been connected with imaginary lines in the past. Yeah. And I, I always like that idea of these, these imaginary lines and, you know, we, we tend to, as, as human beings, regardless of our cultural background, just be connecting these, these lines in space. And sometimes when we're looking through the telescopes, we're just connecting, uh, you know, basically dots or stars to create straight lines or a lot of the time it's triangles. Like I'll say, hey, like if you want to see the galaxy, it's right next to this little triangle or this little pattern of stars or something like that. And I always think about this, this person who, uh, went on this uh, stargazing expedition. They, they weren't an amateur astronomer. They were, uh, you know, just a regular uh, member of the public and always wanted to see the stars from, from a dark site. And they went to this uh, dark sky star party and um, they were there and the person was giving the sky tour. Did I ever tell you this story? No, I don't think so. This, this is a true story. And the person's giving the sky tour and everybody's really engaged, but, but this one person was there and, kind of see a little bit disappointed. This is like like the best dark night from 
like the best spot you can imagine. And at the end, um, the person who was presenting said, hey, like, do you have any, does anybody have any questions in that? And there was like a few of the common questions, like, oh, I wanted to know which star of Vega was or, you know, uh, things, things of that nature. And this, this uh, one person sort of piped up after and they said, well, look, uh, this is all fine and good, but uh, where are the lines? <laughs> <laughs> so I always like to say, you know, sometimes when people are asking me, well, how dark is it? I don't really know how to say it. It's so dark at this spot. You can see the lines in the constellations. <laughs> so. Never believe Chris. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, but it can be a little bit difficult to see the constellation of Andromeda because it doesn't have any really, really bright stars. It has a bunch of second magnitude stars up there, right? Yeah, yeah. What I find sets it off is just once you uh, learn the alignment of the stars, like they, they kind of create like, in my mind, uh, like a cylinder or like a, you know, a tube. Like there's kind of the bottom row of stars and then the top row of stars that um, really stand out for me. Mm. If you're looking for Andromeda, I find the easiest thing to do is just find the square of uh, Pegasus and then the W of Cassiopeia. And it's sort of right between the two. It kind of extends off of uh, Pegasus. In fact, um, sorry, yeah. And there's uh, Alpharats, which is the brightest star. Well, no, it's the Alpha star, I should say. I think it's actually the second brightest star in Andromeda because... This is one of those things where Johan Baer's 1603 year anemetria cataloged by uh, right ascension instead of brightest star for, for Andromeda or, or something to that effect. And Alpharats used to make the corner star, uh, the sort of top right, or sorry, top left corner star of the square of Pegasus. Um, so once you get to that point, you know you're on Andromeda. So that actually is a perfect starting point if you're trying to sort this out. And then if you kind of, come across, you'll see like there's this faint uh, band of stars, but uh, Alpharats or Alpha Andromedae is also known as Syrah, and it's located uh, just under 100 light years from Earth. And uh, it's a second magnitude uh, binary star, about uh, 200 times brighter than our sun. That's quite bright. Yeah. Then we have Merak or Beta Andromeda. It's roughly about the same magnitude is Alpharats. It's actually, I think it's just a hair brighter. It, it, there's a little bit of variability to it. Uh, and uh, let's see, then there's Merak, which is a cool, bright uh, red cluster, again, about 200 light years distance. Uh, but it's quite a bit brighter than our sun. And, you know, the thing about Andromeda is that it lies outside the plane of our Milky Way galaxy. And so we don't have any bright Milky Way star clusters or nebula in that region of the sky. Hmm, that's interesting. Except for there's one. We'll get to that in a moment. So it's got this really bright deep sky object though. Do you want to start and talk about that one? Yeah. So it's most famous for the closest galaxy to Earth, which is the Andromeda Galaxy, uh, M31. Uh, I don't know its NGC number offhand, actually. Let me just take a look. Or do you have that? No, I don't have that. I mean, I think it's fine. Just to refer to it as the Messier 31 galaxy. Um, Charles Messier was a, a amateur or an astronomer who lived from 1730 to 1817. He observed out of the Hotel de Cluny in uh, Paris, in France, uh, which I've been to. I've got some paraphernalia here around me from my visit to, to the Hotel de Cluny and, and saw where he did 
his observations. I uh, did that just right before I moved here to Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, beginners can find this even from a, a bright city. In fact, with my astronomy class in the fall, and I'm starting one up here again shortly, and uh, people can go out with their binoculars even from a, a small to medium-sized city and be able to, to find the Andromeda galaxy with a pair of uh, binoculars. Yeah, I had seven by 35 binoculars out this week and oh. was able to see it from my backyard in, in the city. Yeah, so yeah. not bad else. And near a spiral to us, like you were saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. And if, if you want to find it, uh, I, I usually just start at Mirac. And then just above Mirac is a, a star that probably is about half the brightness. Um, but it's pretty much this time of the year, straight up from Mirac. And then mm -hmm. about that same distance between Mirac and that star, if you keep going up in that direction, you'll, you'll hit M31. And yeah, there's it, like, it's like a little path of faint stars, eh? Yeah, yeah, you sort of just, if you, if you find Mirac and go up, you, you really can't miss it. And then, mm -hmm. so my view through 7 by 35 binoculars, um, it, you couldn't really make out any distinct uh, dark lanes or anything like that of the galaxy. It was really just like a bright, almost like a bright cloud, like an illuminated cloud, uh, mm -hmm. kind of a, you know, an ovalish, roundish, bright, fuzzy spot is yeah. how I would describe it. Okay. Um, but when you and I have been under dark skies, um, I, you, you had a description that still stands out for me and, and you called it a cheeseburger. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> because it's this wide, well, very large oval in the sky yeah. and it sort of represents a, a cheeseburger from the side, I guess. It's a, it's a good analogy. Good description. Wow. I, I totally had forgotten about that and uh, had called it something else uh, in my notes. So I'm actually going to change that for my permanent uh, for my permanent record here. But it's interesting what you're saying about a, a little cloud because, um, you know, as you know, I'm quite interested in the history of astronomy. And in uh, in 964 AD, a Persian astronomer named Al Sufi he wrote this work called uh, I'm not going to try to give it the Persian name, but it was called the Book of Fixed Stars. And uh, most notable in that book is that he correctly oriented the constellations. He gave the reverse orientation, which was the uh, preferred method of orienting the constellations in those days. And then he, then he gave the correctly oriented version. But also, he cataloged this little cloud up in Andromeda, called it a little cloud, and then uh, that ended up being uh, M31. But it didn't make it onto any other star charts until it was uh, rediscovered, or I should say apparently rediscovered in 1612 by uh, Simon Marius, who was, who was observing just, just a few years after uh, Galileo, you know, Galileo having pointed the telescope to the nighttime sky uh, in and around 1609 for the first time. So this is, this is in the very early days. Um, but that little cloud was, was clearly visible to, to the unaided eye um, long before 964, 964 was cataloged. And it's also strange, I also thought it was very odd that somebody like Tycho Brahe, who was observing in the late, uh, mid to late 1500s, uh, never did uh, apparently catalog, at least I've never heard or read uh, that, that he did that, uh, neither did any other uh, astronomers. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it is, it is a little bit, uh, a little bit strange. But in, also in the history of astronomy, there's something very important about, <laughs> about the Andromeda galaxy, and that's what Edwin Hubble discovered in uh, 1923. So um, do you want to chat a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, let me just see here. So he found these standard candles. 
that were Cepheid oh, yes. variable stars in there. The variables, yeah. yeah, which helped uh, determine the size of the universe. Yeah, and uh, most importantly, the distance to to the Milky Way and uh, Andromeda, um, which turned out to be uh, just over 2.3 million light years. So that's very far. And until that point, they thought that maybe the Andromeda galaxy and a lot of these other faint galaxies were just um, little pieces of the of the Milky Way, our own galaxy, but they found out that they were all, you know, sort of quote unquote to quote, um, you know, can island universes all, all in themselves. Yeah, fundamentally changed how astronomers perceived the universe. And how I think, and you know, and there's broad appeal to the public at that point that, you know, when you find out that, that the universe in which we all live in is much larger than we thought it was, uh, you know, on a scale that is truly astounding and mind-blowing i think i think that does something to to all of us to make that realization yeah yeah absolutely so you can see a few things in the andromeda galaxy itself you can see uh, m32 and m110 these are uh, little galaxies or uh, dwarf galaxies which which attend uh, m31 you can see them start to see them in binoculars they start to look pretty good in in telescopes yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you have a, a large telescope, I'd say probably, you know, 12 inch would be ideal. I don't know, maybe a 10 inch would work. You can actually observe some clusters that are in Andromeda, which is like, a, it still blows my mind that you can observe um, like deep sky objects in another galaxy from here on Earth. Uh, it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, Two of the prominent ones are uh, known as G76 and A78. Mm -hmm. uh, they're kind of you, close. You've actually, you've actually tracked these down, Shane. Like we're, we're talking about this, but we actually do uh, a lot of visual observing. And you, you tracked these down one night when we were in the Grasslands National Park Dark Sky Preserve, I remember. Yeah, yeah. I had a 12-inch uh, Mead Light Bridge, uh, which is a Dobsonian telescope. And I was using some pretty high power and um, custom you know, it's just chart kind of, or some sort of chart that you get from somewhere. Yeah. Well, so if somebody's interested, like there's definitely some charts available, like um, something that's accessible today is the night sky observers guide by uh, Keppel and Sanner um, yep. from Willem Bell. Yep. Um, they, there's a, a, a chart in here that shows a whole bunch of the different clusters within Andromeda but if you really want to get into it, there is a book called Atlas of the Andromeda Galaxy. It was printed in 1981. Uh, it is a bit of a hard book to find. And I think if you find it, you'll probably pay a few dollars for it. But it is phenomenal. Uh, it has 41 different charts, um, quite detailed. Uh, and I don't know what magnitude it goes down to, but it, it goes quite dim. Um, so if you have a large telescope and you're really interested in trying to tease out some of the detail in Andromeda, this is a must have book, uh, in your library. Mm. But yeah, it is neat to see some of that stuff. It, it, it's not, again, it's not like, um, you, you don't see a lot of detail, but you see some brighter yeah. little areas that aren't yeah. really like star like. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, the, the, various uh, clusters and things that you can see there. Um, I think there's like over 400 globulars in Andromeda that yeah. you can see and, and probably, you know, close to that amount of open clusters. And, you know, you'd, you'd need sort of successfully bigger telescopes, I think, because even in your 12 inch, and we're at like about the, 
the darkest place that you can get to. Um, and I remember, you know, it was, it was amazing to see that. I was really appreciative that you, you sort of included me in that observation because I'd always wanted to see it, but tracking down globulars in another galaxy is, I mean, I, I feel like it took you a good piece of the evening. I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like it took a significant amount of time to actually track it down. Yeah, it was at least half of the night, I think I yeah. spent just going through Andromeda. Um, with a 12 inch, I'm not sure how many of these objects you could actually observe. I'm guessing it's just a handful. I think mm -hmm. if you really wanted to make this a project, you'd probably need something in the 15 to 20 inch range or, or mm -hmm. larger, of course, mm -hmm. uh, to really, uh, you know, knock a few of these off the list. But there is one thing that, that I've enjoyed observing, even with small equipment, um, and that's a star cloud called NGC 206. I think it's yeah, 206. Uh, 206 yeah. is also um, uh, A78. Okay. So they're one and the same. And in fact, 206, like that might be, correct me if I'm wrong, that might be one of the few or maybe only um, object with an NGC classification that is part of another galaxy. Uh, there's a few. I know there's NGC okay. 604, which is in Triangulum. Oh, okay. okay. There, there's, there's a few others out there. Th these are just two off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're right. There's not going to be that many. Like most objects are just simply objects in, in themselves. But um, seeing uh, NGC 206 is much easier than 604, I think, is, is the one. It's a star forming region in the Triangulum Galaxy, which is nearby. Um, but it's much, much more difficult to see, in my opinion, than, uh, than 206, which is relatively easy and can see it in, uh, in like small 80 millimeter like telescopes. Yeah, yeah. Another thing too that is fairly attainable in, in modest aperture telescopes is the, the big dust lane in Andromeda. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, most, like all photos show it quite well. Um, but if you have a, a night of good transparency, and I'd say probably, you know, four to eight inches of aperture somewhere in that range. Uh, you can see a very apparent giant dust lane down the middle of it almost, uh, which starts to give it that three-dimensional appearance as well, uh, which is really, really neat. You know, if you really want to get a good view of M31 though, you know, all, you just have to do one thing. You know what you have to do? Tell me. Is you just have to wait about four and a half billion years and then it's going to come to us. <laughs> That's true. It's it's getting closer every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's eventually going to collide with the the Milky Way. But uh, no no threat to our home here is is uh, that time period. I believe is is about as long or maybe longer than the uh, the life of the sun so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. How so about some other? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's lots of other things we can look at there too. Yeah. So one is uh, NGC eight nine one. Have you ever looked at this? I don't think I have. I don't, I don't recall it on my list. You know, and I don't know that it's in many other lists, but it's a, it's a great little galaxy. And, and my observing partner in Ontario, Tim, uh, he brought it to, to my attention. It was discovered by uh, William and Carolyn Herschel in uh, August of 1783. Uh, but it's a very slim edge on galaxy. And it's one of those objects that to see it the first time, is super difficult, or at least we found it difficult in, in small telescopes. Um, but then kind of once you saw it that first time or as you, as you became more experienced observer, uh, sort of becomes progressively easier and easier uh, to observe. But it, it's a neat one. But I don't know that it's on many lists. 
I don't, I don't believe so anyway, but that definitely is a galaxy worth hunting down in, in, uh, in like an eight inch reflector or something like that. Yeah. Magnitude 10.8. So certainly not, not bright. super bright. Yeah. 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 And, it's and being it's, its edge on, it's not, um, right. it, it's also, you know, it's kind of small in size. So uh, I could see that being a, a kind of an easy one to miss at times probably. Yeah. The, uh, let's see, there's a planetary nebula up in Andromeda as well. Um, I forget the NGC on it though. Uh, 7662, I think it is. It's part of the Caldwell list of objects from, from Patrick Moore, uh, sort of with the, the caveat that, should be referring to objects as, as uh, NGC or, or Messina or Caldwell. Um, I've tracked that one down. It's, yeah, it's not too bad in a, in a five inch apocrymat. Uh, 7662, you said? Yeah, have you ever looked at that one? Uh, I think I have. I think it's a finest NGC as well. So it's, mm, it's uh, a fairly bright, I think it's like nine, eight or something like that. Yeah, eight, eight, six. Eight, six, yeah, there we go. Yeah, it's, it's fairly bright. For sure. Yeah. And then would you use a filter on that? I didn't when I observed it. I just swept it up one night. And yeah. uh, even at moderate power, like, I don't know, like 50 power, it was, it was showing up as uh, 50 power, 75 power. It was showing up as, as a bloated star. So, yeah. yeah. And really this just planetary uh, nebula, which is a star like our sun that has lived out its life and it's giving its gas back to the uh, galaxy. Yeah. Were you, were you able to detect color? Oh, I used to detect color a lot better than I do now. It was sort of like a neon green, but I think it would be more like gray to my eye these days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, let's see. And then we have NGC 752, which is one of my favorite open clusters because it's, it's very large. It's nearly a degree around. I think it's like 0.5 um, degrees. Uh, not half degree, but sorry, 0.50. So it's like... Anyway, it's, it's large and it's a loose scattering of ninth magnitude stars. And it was quote unquote discovered by Carolyn Herschel during her sweeps with her own small telescopes. But in my research, you know, I think it was actually first observed by G.B. Hodierna, who was observing in the uh, uh, sort of mid 1600s uh, in, in Italy. And it seems like he, he probably observed it. He's often credited with having observed M33. I think that is extremely unlikely. I think that, uh, that this is what he saw because this NGC 752, it looks like a little fuzzy, large fuzzy area to the unaided eye. And then through, through the telescope, you can start to see stars. And uh, I kind of think that's, that's probably what he was looking at because his style of observing was to look for fuzzy things you could see with your eye without a telescope and then put the telescope on. That's, that's what he was doing. And this object makes sense for that. And it's in the same area. Yeah, the apparent magnitude. So kind of the overall light coming from all of these stars is listed at 5.7. So that's definitely, you know, a naked eye object hmm. under a dark sky. Yeah, and you can, you can see it. Um, it's not. Under a dark sky, you can see it. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. need to be. It, it's not that, that big of a stretch. So any other deep sky objects? That you want to talk about in the Andromeda? Um, you know, there's there's a whole pile, like any constellation, there's a whole pile of double stars um, or multiple star systems that are in there. Um, none really jump out to me uh, as, you know, standouts. Um, but 
there's there's definitely a few different color combinations like there is uh, a yellow and a, a bluish green which is um 57 andromeda okay uh, i'm just looking at the magnitude here uh, yeah i can't find that but um i think they're not too bad like i think that these are achievable under using like modest telescopes uh, that most uh, amateurs would have uh, access to <clears throat> excuse me um, but yeah there's a whole pile of of uh, double stars to hunt down in in the constellation i'm just looking up to see if i can find that really quick but uh yeah it's uh i don't know i think it's like third or fourth magnitude or something yeah anyway could be there's also a meteor shower that occurs out of Andromeda every November and early December. Oh, I did not know that. Is it a very prominent one? Um, no, two to three per hour. Mm, yeah, that's pretty light. <laughs> yeah. I feel, I feel like you could see two to three meteors per hour almost any night. Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, that's pretty weak, so. Yeah, but Andromeda definitely worth uh, worth checking out at this time of year. It's rising higher and higher because kind of once it starts getting up so high, once we get later into uh, into the autumn months, um, it can become sort of difficult to see as it gets into uh, like Dobson's holes, we call it. <laughs> yeah, anything straight overhead is pretty challenging to look at with a telescope. It just yeah. the the physicality of it makes it very challenging to try to align your telescope and then. You know, if you're using a refractor like we do, um, you know, you're almost sitting on the ground to look through the eyepiece. And if you're using a Dobsonian, just the movement of the mount and everything makes it a real challenge to try to see anything directly overhead. It sounds silly, but once you actually try it, it it's it's a real pain. Yeah, and especially for people who are maybe trying to uh, take a look for the uh, M31 galaxy for the first time. Uh, if you're just using binoculars, it's a little bit more ergonomic to to kind of be looking, you know, around that halfway up to the zenith, or about 45 degrees up from the horizon, uh, from the northern hemisphere anyway, where we are, um, than it is when it when it gets overhead or if it's too low or something like that. So this is kind of like the ideal time to uh, to start looking for it. Yeah, yeah, it really is perfectly positioned. Um, and the nice thing is that as soon as it's dark, you can start observing there. You don't have to wait for it to rise or, um, you know, get into a more favorable part of the sky. It's yeah. ready when you are. Good stuff. All right. Well, anything else to add to the Andromeda constellation? Deep dive, splash, swim, swim. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is all. All right. Good stuff. Well, how can people stay in touch with us, Shane? Uh, so you can find us on Twitter, actual astronomy, uh, there, um, you can email us. We are at, or sorry, we are actual astronomy at gmail.com. And our podcast is available on all of the major platforms, uh, you know, Apple, Spotify, Google, on and on and on. Uh, you can also leave us reviews or feedback on any of those platforms. And we do our best to respond to everything that comes in. Great. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. And thank you to everybody for listening.